Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 139, Into the Abyss, part 3. Where we left off last week, the Nazis had averted what might have been an inter-party civil war when Gregor Strasser declined to face off against Hitler. Strasser's subsequent withdrawal from active politics meant that Chancellor von Schleicher's best opportunity to ally with at least part of the NSDAP had been lost. Hitler was now implacably against him, as were the KPD and SPD on the left. The general chancellor would not be bringing any new stability to the state. On the new Reichstag's first day of debate on December 7, 1932, the Nazis and communists got into a brawl as the new chancellor looked on. Hindenburg had hoped that the crafty general would manage to maneuver the factions tearing the nation apart, but the biggest of them seemed to only agree on his government being unacceptable. Schleicher was in a trap of his own making. To get to the office of Chancellor, he had backstabbed and manipulated everyone around him, and his enemies were now everywhere. Hitler was alienated from his refusal to hand over power, then the brazen attempt to split the NSDAP. Schleicher hated everything that smacked of Marxism, so both the SPD and KPD were irreconcilable from the get-go. Even the true source of his political success, President Hindenburg, was almost immediately regretful of his decision to pick Schleicher. The old man was a flimsy personality when it came to backing subordinates. As we've covered in this miniseries, he saw his chancellors as disposable. Schleicher's job was to unify the right so that the left could be crushed, and he wasn't getting that job done. It didn't help that the clique of people around Hindenburg had also started turning on Schleicher, where once the general was able to act as a ground-level conspirator... Now, he was the one tied to an actual office, subject to the intrigues of people like himself. And the men in the president's office increasingly didn't see a point in having Schleicher in charge, even after only a couple weeks in power. The only answer to ending the political chaos on the terms of the conservatives was to bring in the Nazis. Bruning had failed, Poppen had failed, and almost immediately Schleicher had failed, although he still grasped at the straw of Strasser coming back and riding to the rescue. The new chancellor's first address to the nation on December 15th had failed to win over any friends either. In the radio speech, he declared himself uninterested in the minutia of the divisions tormenting the nation, offering that his ideology was one of results. Specifically rejecting both pure capitalism and socialism, he claimed that he would do whatever was necessary to rebuild the nation. Notions of private property and class struggle both be damned. This went over well enough on the street level, but turned the business class against him immediately while failing to bring the SPD and KPD around. The next evening, on the 16th, Franz von Papen put himself back in the game. The occasion was a conservative gala at the Kroll Opera House, a venue smack-dab in the midst of the halls of power. He didn't even have to go far. He was still living in his quarters in the Reich Chancellery Building, which, hey, was also the same building Hindenburg was living in at the time while the president's offices were being renovated. Funny that they were living just a couple minutes from each other at such a fraught time. Anyway, he went to the gala and delivered a speech defending his time in power, after which a high-powered banker friend named Kurt von Schroeder offered up that Adolf Hitler was interested in having a little sit-down and wondered if Poppen was interested. Despite their mutual history, Poppen was very interested in talking with Hitler about the future. Hitler was being told the same thing at the same time by Schacht while he was on his tour of the party branches around Germany during the post-Strasser kerfuffle. Hitler was amazed Poppen would even speak to him, but was on board with meeting. A new conspiracy was thus born. 
Schleicher was aware that Poppin was up to something, probably turning Hindenburg against him. Those around Hindenburg certainly wanted to normalize the old field marshal's powers while they still had time. The financial markets had finally stabilized, and normal business was starting to be conducted again. It appeared as if the rock bottom had been reached, and Germany was back on its way up. This was alarming to those wishing for an authoritarian regime with improved economic conditions. Well, then voters would be less in crisis mode and more willing to back parties that were comfortable keeping the republic going. Years of undermining could eventually be undone. Moves had to be made immediately to ensure the democracy was ended permanently without provoking the left into a civil war. And by the end of 1932, it appeared as if Schleicher didn't have the answers to do that. The German political scene went into hibernation for the end-of-the-year holidays, and it wasn't until January 4th, 1933, that Hitler and Papen met up at Schroeder's Manor in the city of Cologne. Hitler started the meeting by going all aggro on Papen, attacking him for prosecuting SA members over the whole Potempa thing. Papen looked at Hitler incredulously and brushed him off, saying that lingering over the past like that was a waste of time. Papen offered a vague, mutual leadership kind of arrangement between the two of them, with the Nazis likely to be getting minister spots as well. Hitler, for the first time, indicated he was ready to work in a cabinet not totally composed of his fellow Nazis. The meeting was supposed to be a secret. Uh, Hitler was in the area already on the aforementioned party business. Papen was coming up from a Black Forest hunting trip on his way to visit his mom in Dusseldorf. But eyes were everywhere, and both men were detected, with Poppin being photographed leaving the manor. On the 6th, both participants would have to issue public denials regarding the meeting, claiming in a joint statement it was only a conversation about a unity government under Schleicher. Everything's fine, don't worry. Three days later, Poppin would personally sit down with Schleicher and assure the sitting chancellor that the meeting was an attempt to bring Hitler on board with the existing government. Nothing more. He then slipped in the little lie that it appeared that Hitler didn't even want to be chancellor anymore. Why Schleicher would believe that, I have no idea, but he confided to the French ambassador that bit of information as clear indication that things were going well for him. He also bragged about being close to bringing Gregor Strasser on board, which he wasn't close, and also Strasser really didn't matter at that point, yet Schleicher still thought he was the key. If Schleicher was being serious about all this, then his conspiracy skills had lost more than a step since becoming Chancellor. Later that day, Poppen told Hindenburg that Hitler might be willing to play ball. Hindenburg told him to keep the behind-closed-doors talks going. The wrinkle was that Hindenburg still didn't want Hitler to command anything, so being unofficial joint chancellors was still a no-go. This didn't sit well with Hitler at all, as on the next day, the 10th, they met again, this time at the Berlin residence of a good friend of Poppins, Joachim von Ribbentrop. Remember that name. He's going to eventually be the head of the Nazi Foreign Office. If you've heard of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, that's him. He was a wine merchant who married into nobility and in recent years had become a fervent admirer of Hitler. While he hated that his friend Poppin and Hitler didn't get along, he was always a happy go-between for them. Although as the years went on, he would firmly hitch his star to Hitler and the Nazis. The meeting was short and didn't go well. Hitler nearly broke things off when he was informed of Hindenburg's continued opposition to the Nazis getting meaningful power. Poppen at that moment was unable to overcome the old man's objections on the subject, and to Hitler there wasn't much more to talk about. Schleicher, though, was increasingly under siege on his end. 
The business class was already gathering around Poppin, and the government's efforts at redistributing land in the East and the failure to implement agrarian tariffs to protect German landowners aroused the active anger of the Junkers, who took to denouncing said government in the press, in the Reichstag, and, most importantly, to Hindenburg personally. Their lobbyist group, the Reichslandbund, had to sit down with Boschleicher and Hindenburg on the 11th. They complained that Poppin's policies weren't being continued and set off a bombshell when they informed Schleicher that they were launching a press campaign to call his policies agrarian Bolshevism. Which, uh, holy hell, the conservative playbook really hasn't changed at all, has it? Hindenburg chastised the landowners as going a little too far, but did order Schleicher to review the issue and report back to him. Which really didn't sit well with Schleicher. The president was supposed to leave government business to the chancellor, at least per the constitution. But that does highlight the pitfalls of using extraordinary powers of one office to seize the other. It means that one becomes subordinate to the other pretty quick. It also means the Constitution stops mattering really quick. Schleicher came to the conclusion that he would need to exercise the very powers that he had claimed a month and a half ago during Poppin's last cabinet meeting would actually ignite a civil war. On the 17th, he informed his cabinet that he would ask Hindenburg to dissolve the Reichstag and postpone new elections indefinitely. The move was one of his only remaining ones, as on the 13th, Hugenberg and the DNVP had declined to offer his support, as had the Stahlhelm organization. Not even the faded players on the far right wanted to touch him. Before Schleicher would take that step, though, the conspiracy against him rolled on. Hugenberg met with Hitler on the 17th, with the former suggesting they make a deal with Schleicher after all. Hitler, for his part, only wanted the DNVP to shore up his own standing with Hindenburg. He wasn't there to discuss configurations, but couldn't let Hugenberg on to what was going on, even if it was kind of obvious what was happening behind the scenes. When Hitler pressed for the DNVP's backing in a future leadership play, Hugenberg refused on the grounds that Hindenburg would only spurn him again, and the two got into a public shouting match. Hitler's disposition could not have been improved when, on the next day, he met with Poppen at Ribbentrop's place once again. Poppen confirmed that, no, Hindenburg wasn't about to hand power to Hitler himself. Observing that they had reached the end of their line of plotting, Hitler left with the expectation that that was it. Ribbentrop, though, had an idea. He proposed one more meeting, this time bringing in Oskar Hindenburg, the president's son. Oskar was not a terribly smart man, and his position as a colonel in the army was entirely due to his dad, as he really should have moved on after 30 years in uniform. Then again, he didn't really have responsibilities beyond acting as a de facto aide to his father. Hitler met with Oscar and Papen on the evening of January 22nd and spoke to Oscar alone for two hours. The younger Hindenburg didn't like Hitler much more than his dad did and had cautioned against giving him the chancellorship in the past. Their conversation was reportedly Hitler covering every topic under the sun in his continuous plotting manner, which wore down Oscar. Hitler would say afterwards to Goebbels that young Oscar cut a rare image of stupidity. Oscar's impression was quite different, and he related to his father's chief of staff afterwards that it might be impossible to keep Hitler out of power. Even better news that evening was that Poppen himself was prepared to accept the vice-chancellorship while Hitler would get the main office. The only thing standing in Hitler's way to the chancellorship now was President Hindenburg. The next day, the 23rd, Schleicher presented the disillusion with no election plan to Hindenburg. 
The president said that he was okay with dissolving the Reichstag, but was not prepared to cancel elections. The government had simply too much resistance set against it. Plus, he remembered the ought presentation and how the army projected civil war both steps were taken. That was probably the moment that Schleicher realized he was done, less than two months after having gained power. On the 26th, Schleicher met with the actual commander of the army, Kurt von Hammerstein Accord. Schleicher confessed that his resignation might only be days away, and then Hindenburg would likely appoint some combination around Poppen and Hugenberg. Hammerstein Accord correctly observed both those guys were losers and couldn't possibly govern the nation. In fact, he was afraid such a combo would spark a civil war, and left to go see the president to discuss that very matter. Hindenburg gently told the general not to worry about politics, but also that he had given the matter thought and realized that, yes, the non-Nazi configurations to any government wouldn't work. Hindenburg might have to bring in Hitler after all. To Hammerstein Accord and the rest of the army, this was acceptable. Preferable, even. Despite the higher officers being mistrustful of the Nazis, anyone with a brain could recognize after the last political year that the only figure on the right who could make a stable government was Hitler. And the president was quickly becoming less of a holdout as those around him and those he trusted themselves began to line up behind Hitler. Two days later, Schleicher met with Hindenburg one last time. Again, he asked to dissolve the Reichstag with no elections. Hindenburg shut him down immediately. The Reichstag was set to reconvene on the 31st, and they were sure to deliver a no-confidence vote. Seeing the end, Schleicher and his government resigned. It had been in power for 57 days. Hindenburg summoned Poppen immediately and told him to start forming a new government. The news hit the streets like a thunderbolt, and everybody was talking. Except they weren't talking a lot about Hitler. Hindenburg's evolution of his no-Hitler rule into being a no-Hitler's rule in that he's allowed to have one was not known to anyone. People thought they were just going to get a new serving of Poppen's old government. How wrong they were. The next day, Poppen met with Hitler and Goering and hammered out the details of a new cabinet. It would be remarkably light on Nazis. The foreign, transportation, and finance ministries all would have the same leadership as they had under Schleicher and Poppen. A conservative but otherwise politically inert general named Walter von Blomberg would take over defense. On paper, the Nazis didn't actually get much. The Interior Ministry, which is to say the federal cops, would go to Wilhelm Frick, while Goering would take the Interior Ministry of the State of Prussia. This would place him under Poppen, as the ex-chancellor still managed Prussia after his power grab back in July. The big benefit from the positions was that the Nazis assumed control of the two biggest groups of police in the country— which is exactly as bad as it sounds. To round out the cabinet, Hugenberg got the economic ministry. The co-chief of the Stahlhelm, a man named Franz Selt, gained labor. Hugenberg convinced himself that the composition of the cabinet would isolate Hitler, while also leaving him as the scapegoat if things didn't work out. The other co-leader of the Stahlhelm, Theodor Dusterberg, was less enthusiastic, warning that if one went to bed with an anaconda, they shouldn't be surprised to wake up with broken legs which is a very German expression. Poppen was vice-chancellor, and yes, Adolf Hitler was finally, finally handed the chancellorship. The individual ministries in the government were, were powerful compared to the chancellor, and it was hoped that Hitler would be a managed figurehead. Poppen would claim to his concerned friends, we have hired him. He would add, within two months, we will have pushed Hitler so far into a corner that he'll squeak. I wish I could convey the 
unblinking stare I have even after reading that quote for the 20th time. The agreement was still secret, and events were moving fast. A rumor-monger and go-between for Schleicher and the army approached Goebbels later that day and reported that the, the assumption was Poppin would lead another appointed cabinet. He continued that the officer corps wouldn't accept that, and Hindenburg would be placed under house arrest the next day on the grounds he was no longer fit for office. The idea being that Schleicher would take over through pure military means. Goebbels dismissed the rumor as far-fetched, but word was passed along to Hindenburg regardless. After all, General Hammerstein Accord had earlier that day met with Hitler to discuss him taking power in a Schleicher-organized cabinet with military backing if need be. Hitler had agreed to entertain the notion, but didn't actually intend to act on it. Schleicher hadn't heard yet that Hitler was getting what he actually wanted. General Blomberg was intercepted heading back to the army's headquarters to be brought before Hindenburg and sworn in immediately as defense minister. Blomberg was just getting back to Berlin from a trip to Geneva where he had been part of the German delegation at a disarmament conference. At the train station was General Hammerstein Accord, his commanding officer, but then also Oskar Hindenburg. Hammerstein Accord wanted to take him to Schleicher, the younger Hindenburg to his dad. Blomberg knew which way the winds were blowing and went with Oskar. The appointment was illegal as a sitting chancellor had to nominate a new minister, but the constitution really didn't matter anymore. They were all making it up as they went along. And Hindenburg was actually panicked as the rumor mongering had spread to the point where people were saying that the Potsdam garrison was already mobilizing against him. The old field marshal immediately tasked Blomberg with ensuring that the army would never interfere in political matters which would prove to be an assignment that was really convenient for Hitler. There is no indication that a coup was being planned, but the threat of one brought everybody into line. Hindenburg gave his final okay to Hitler, Hugenberg and the Stahlhelm dropped their remaining objections, everybody fell in. The next morning, on January 30th, the new cabinet marched as a group to Hindenburg's offices. Naturally, they were still bickering. Hugenberg and Hitler got into it over elections, the former wanting to avoid new ones where his party would likely lose much of what little support it had left, the latter wanting to use his appointment to the chancellorship as evidence to a doubting electorate that he really was a winner and to get it on board with him. Poppen had to tell Hugenberg to knock it off before making Hitler a promise to work with the centrist parties about getting their support. Hitler replied to the effect of, yeah, sure, I'll uh, get right on that. The group appeared before Hindenburg and were duly sworn in. Hitler said some rubbish about respecting the Constitution and the presidency and future elections, which everyone kind of just ignored as the hollow promises they were. Hindenburg said simply to them, And now, gentlemen, forward with God. And that was that. Rom and Goebbels were standing on the balcony of their Kaiserhof Hotel headquarters, which, remember, was right next to the Chancellery Building. Rom was holding a pair of binoculars where he could see the doors of the room the cabinet was in. They would know what happened based on the looks of the faces that emerged. Goering exited first, yelling in triumph. They watched Hitler emerge and go to his car with tears in his eyes. When he arrived at the Kaiserhof, he was still crying in sheer joy. The Nazis had assembled in the hotel lobby and greeted their Fuhrer with a chorus of heils. He said over and over again, We did it, as he took the elevator to his rooms. The Nazi leadership took to the hotel bar to celebrate. At last, they had won. What had begun as an ephemeral micro-party in the corner of some bar in Munich had weathered years of irrelevance and the disgust of the nation's establishment. But that was all over. 
Chancellor Hitler was now in power. The response from the opposition was muted. Once the initial shock passed after getting the news, SPD leadership and their allied trade unions urged their followers to keep calm and not act hastily. They had to see where this would go. The KPD offered an immediate offer to plan active opposition, but the SPD declined despite the emergency. The left was paralyzed at this critical hour. The centrists focused on getting assurances that the Constitution would be respected. Some in the foreign press played down the change, pointing to the establishment composition of the cabinet and calling the new government the Second and a Half Reich. Others correctly saw this as either a mutation in German politics that would lead to more chaos, or worse, a kind of order that would imperil all of Europe. In that moment, the entire Nazi movement fell into euphoria. The party faithful blanketed the streets in images of swastikas as if an election were already underway, and the brown shirts took to the streets, marching in triumph. The biggest and most iconic example was held that very evening of July 30th, the first day in power. Goebbels scrambled every SA trooper in the area he could to hold a nighttime parade. The numbers vary. Goebbels claimed the ridiculous figure of a million men, with the likely figure being around 20,000 Nazis, but also a solid 40,000 civilians joining them. They carried giant torches in the dark streets and marched in lockstep through the Brandenburg Gate. They passed under the eye of Hitler standing in a window in the Chancellery Building and hailed their Fuhrer, while also paying their every respect to President Hindenburg, of course. Poppen, who was standing behind Hitler at that moment, observed that there might actually be a national revolution. The Nazis certainly pushed that line, linking the success of their movement as being the start of a national awakening, which even non-Nazis were prepared to join in with. Goering declared in a radio broadcast that the parade was the rebirth of the same nationalist spirit that had gripped Germany back in August 1914. The French ambassador watched and commented, The river of fire flowed past the French embassy, whence with a heavy heart and filled with foreboding, I watched its luminous wake. Hitler and the Nazis were finally in power. The question everyone asked as the sun rose on January 31st was the same as ever, though. What now? For Hitler, it was to launch new elections, this time using the full power of the state to tip the scales in his favor. He immediately brushed aside the idea of courting the Zentrum Party, and ergo removed the one hope that the new government could get majority support in the Reichstag. Already on the evening of January 31st, he received consent from Hindenburg to dissolve the Reichstag yet again and call new elections. Poppen was taken aback at how quickly this was being done, and having grown sick of the chaos and instability himself, resolved that it would be the last election from then on out. He would get his wish, just not in the way he was expecting. New elections were set for March 5th. The unifying cry of the election was to drive out the Marxists once and for all. On the evening of February 1st, Hitler made his first radio address to the nation. He started by pointing to the ruin Germany had suffered since the dark days of November 1918, which goes to show how central that time was for Hitler, given that it was the first thing he brought up. He attributed every disaster suffered since then to the Marxists, and that their downfall was a precondition to national unity and rejuvenation. Once the political front had been secured, he promised to carry out a pair of four-year plans, which made Poppen kind of uncomfortable, because that sounded similar to the USSR's five-year plans. The economic details of those all-encompassing plans, though, were left to the imagination. No firm details were given. They were feelings more than plans. Finally, Hitler promised to both simultaneously strengthen the army, while also promising to be a committed man of peace, able to work in the pre-existing global framework. 
Thereafter, most of the month of February was spent getting ducks in a row for the upcoming election. On the 3rd, Hitler reached out to the army in order to come to an understanding. He met with a collection of senior officers at Hammerstein Accords home and laid out his vision for them. These were the older officers and were not predisposed to like him. Hitler himself didn't terribly like them either. He observed privately that when he was a younger man in the trenches, he thought German generals to be aggressive and fearless. But his experiences up to this point had done away with those illusions. The local commanders he had dealt with in Bavaria had proven to be untrustworthy and uninterested in sticking their necks out. Others had proven to be pompous towards the low-class Hitler. Even the biggest names like Ludendorff and Hindenburg had disappointed him greatly. And the experience of that evening would not improve their standing in his eyes, which would be a reoccurring theme for him while in power. He started by again saying he was there to root out Marxism from the nation, and tied that goal to the army by pointing out that the army could not be expanded until the general population was ideologically pure and reliable for service. The scenes of revolutionary sentiment in the conscripted army of 1918 would not be repeated. That being said, once the goal had been carried out, then army expansion could begin in earnest, with the most up-to-date weapons of war being added to Germany's arsenal. He recognized that abandoning all previous treaties would be perilous, and that, even if done in secret, that outside powers would eventually realize what was going on. He didn't commit to specific war plans or even dwell on his long-held theories of Lebensraum, but was upfront that a war with France and therefore also her allies to the East was a distinct possibility. Despite the dangers, Hitler's plan would provide the army with resources and a central importance unrivaled even by the Kaiser's old state. The German military would go from being a glorified police force to the most advanced in Europe, and ergo the world. The officers didn't show much interest in Hitler's plans for ideological purity, but they were very interested in becoming the leading figures in what was to be the central institution of the state. Hitler only asked in return that the army remain neutral in what was coming domestically. Some of the officers had misgivings, but broadly they were on board with the plan. Hammerstein Accord might have been close to Schleicher, but he himself was no political conspirator, and neither were the rest of the officers. They accepted standing off to the side while events took their course. Not that they were inclined to save the Republic in any case. They hated it, just the same as the rest of the conservatives. Hitler managed to cement their neutrality by having Blomberg, already sympathetic to the Nazis, make political neutrality mandatory. Hammerstein Accord himself was cut off from direct access to Hindenburg, even though he was commander-in-chief and found himself having to work through Blomberg. On the internal oppression front, an unused draft law that Poppin had put together back in November restricting press freedoms and allowing the uncharged arrest for up to three months of anyone deemed as having breached the general peace was put into effect on February 4th. That last bit was obviously not going to be applied to the SA. On the 15th, Goering ordered the police of the Prussian state to cease any work targeting the SA and other right-wing groups and instead do everything in their power to aid them. On the 22nd, he went further and declared that the SA, SS, and Stahlhelm would serve as auxiliaries and would be expected to attack state enemies on their own initiative, again with police support. The Prussian police forces, having been progressively purged of their SPD elements since Papen had seized control of the state back in July, complied. As a result, the KPD had to go largely underground, as their members were attacked on site while out on the streets. If they weren't killed outright by the roving packs of brown shirts, they could at the very least expect a beating of a lifetime. 
Their meetings and demonstrations were banned outright in Prussia and the other German states that have fallen under Nazi influence. Even areas still under the control, or at least influence, of non-Nazis started following Goering's lead due to pressure coming from Wilhelm Frick, the national-level police minister. The SPD got off a little lighter, if only for the moment, and saw their newspapers get banned while the general press was restricted on what they could report on. Even if the SPD could operate more normally than the KPD, though, their members were also subject to assault from the brown shirts. All across Germany, the SA stormed into the offices and meeting areas of the SPD and KPD both, while, of course, also attacking Jewish businesses. All the while, Hitler campaigned across Germany, the Nazi coffers having been refilled by industrialists at the urging of Schacht, declaring that this was his war against Marxism. When the street violence expanded to include members of the Zentrum, Hitler dismissed the charges as false flag incidents from the Marxists trying to discredit National Socialism. Everything was fine, only state enemies were being attacked. The violence the Nazis were inflicting with no pushback had the strange effect of actually ratcheting up tensions within the National Socialist movement. The thinking among them was that if they were under attack like this themselves, then you could be certain that they would fight back. Yet the SPD and KPD weren't, both trying to save their strength and wait out the Nazis until their support bled away over the long term. The Nazis failed to grasp that enthusiasm among the trade unions, leftist street fighters, and even the party rank and file for both groups was at rock bottom, and even if ordered, would only present a giant target for the SA and police to destroy. The Nazis, though, convinced themselves that a coup was imminent, and even started creating rumors amongst each other that there was a conspiracy to assassinate Hitler. The Nazis had thought that a civil war was a given, and had actually wanted one in order to, you know, openly destroy their enemies. But there had been no inciting incidents so far. Little did they know that a unique occurrence was about to happen at the end of the month that would serve as the pretext to accelerate all the Nazis' plans. As it turned out, the Weimar Republic wouldn't exactly be ending with a whimper. Next week, we cover the Reichstag fire and its fallout, which would make Hitler a dictator, transform Germany, and even turn around on many of the people who had fought to make it all happen. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.